1 Kings 21. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. And as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people, and the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, which he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. 
I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. For the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard the words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his day, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you that it is a light to our path. I pray that you would open our hearts to it today, and that you would give Paul your words as he comes to speak, and that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us courage and obedience to walk in the ways of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a note about the title, Naboth, one of God's 7,000. That comes from 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18, where God had told Elijah that he had preserved 7,000 in Israel who had not bowed the knee or kissed Baal. Naboth was one of those 7,000. I want to give the big picture of this text before zooming in on some details. There's something about this story that resonates with humankind. It's not just Naboth's story, it's our story. And in one way or another, we find ourselves in this story. As I said, it's not just one man's story, it's everyone's story. And this story finds its fullest depiction in the life and the death of Jesus Christ. And it's a story that culminates in the judgments described by Matthew in chapter 25 as he describes the sheep and the goats judgment, and John as he describes the great right throne judgment in Revelation 20. This story also talks about two realities or two spheres in our world, the material sphere and the spiritual sphere. And it only makes sense, it only finds resolution when you hold those two things in tension, when you keep both of those two realities in mind, for it illustrates the interaction between the material and the spiritual. The story breaks down when one, one reality is seen to have no impact on the other reality or no influence on the other one. We get a picture of this in Psalm 73 as David is troubled by what appears to be the success of the wicked. They seem to prosper at every turn. They seem to be fat. They seem to be, uh, have everything they need. They seem to live long lives. And he despaired and his foot almost slipped. But he says a little bit later in the text, until I came in to the sanctuary of the Lord. There's an earthly perspective and there's an eternal 
perspective. We find that in Psalm 10. Psalm 10 is really a description of the first 16 verses of this story where it describes those who live as though there is no God. People suffer, they're afflicted, justice is mocked, God is mocked, the strong win, the powerful win, the weak are oppressed. That seems to be the lot of so many in the world in which we live. But then you go to Psalm 33 and you get the other perspective or the full perspective because it's illustrative of a vast amount of biblical truth that gives us the full perspective about justice and life and truth. For there in Psalm 33 it says, The Lord looks down from heaven and he sees all of the children of man. There is a God on his throne and there is a God that looks down on this world and he sees every single one that he has created. While this story reflects the experience of humankind, it specifically zeroes in on the lot of the children of God. We who are part of the 7,000, we who are part of the 144,000, that great multitude which nobody can count, we who are God's children. The story connects us back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And if you were here before Christmas, we spent a whole morning on that particular text, Genesis 3:15, which talks about the enmity or the hostility that is in this world between the, the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There are only two families in this world. There are families who have their father who is the devil, and there are, fam or there are those children who have their father as God. There are only two families, and there is tension between those two families. This story illustrates the tension between those two families. As a side note, I do want to make it clear, and I'll be dropping these hints along the way. If your father is the evil one today, you are not certainly doomed, because God, the Father, has drawn up adoption papers. God, our Heavenly Father, has an adoption plan that he has set in motion and already worked out. He can take you from darkness to light. He can take you from the kingdom of Satan and bring you into the marvelous light of his glorious kingdom. While you have light or life, your destiny is not sealed. We get our bearings in this text as we look at the first verse some time passed after these events. It's just a reference back to the Syrian debacle and the pronouncement of judgment against Ahab by God's prophet. If you remember at the end of that text as Pastor Barry left us in verse 43, after the king had been pronounced for the third time by a prophet of God that he was going to die, it said the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. He was stewing. He wasn't remorseful. He was sullen. He wasn't repentive. He was ticked off at the word of God and what God had said to him. In chapter 20, Ahab, Ahab had been waging an external battle, a battle against the Syrian army. Now Ahab is waging an internal battle which characterized his reign. It's a battle that he fights externally, but it's waging inside of him. And it's a battle with the word of God. And it's a battle against the prophets of God who represented the word of God. If you were here when we first introduced this series a number of weeks back, we, we introduced it with describing the reign of Ahab. And at the end of the description of the reign of Ahab in chapter 16, verse 34, there's this strange verse. It summarizes his kingdom. It says, in his days, Ahab's days, 
Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid the foundation at the cost of Abraham, his firstborn, and set up the gates at the cost of his youngest, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoke by Joshua the nun, or Joshua, son of nun. Joshua wasn't a nun. The point being made to us, though, about that is that the reign of Ahab was characterized by a disregard for the word of God, by a distaste for the word of God, by a rejection of the word of God, by ignoring of the clear word of God. He lived and reigned in defiance to the word of God. Ahab hated the word of God. And in fact, we will see next week when he gathers all these prophets around him and they say, is there one more prophet? He says, yes, there is, but I hate him because he always tells me what I don't like. What he was saying was I hate the word of God because it directs me in a course that I don't want. Ahab wanted to do what Ahab wanted to do. The word of God would not let him off the hook. The prophets in the Old Testament functioned as the word of God and they pricked the consciences of people. Today we have the complete word of God which also serves to guide and direct and shape our conscience to accuse us when we're wrong and to encourage us when we're right. What is your relationship with the word of God today? The first part of this text, the first 16 verses, tells us the trouble with only half a picture, an earthbound perspective. It's a brutal story. It really is. It's not an unfamiliar though, one, though, is it? It's about injustice. It's about the abuse of power. It's about the disregard of God's people by others. And the first four verses are filled with tension, and lurking in the background is this sullen, vexed, pouting king. A local man had a vineyard, as the story goes, and it was in Jezreel next to the palace of King Ahab. And if we didn't know the rest of the story, this might be a great place to stop because we think, wow, how serendipitous is that? We talk about real estate, don't we? Say location, location, location. What a better place to have a vineyard than beside the king of Israel. What a better place to be connected with the social elite of Israel than to have a vineyard next to the summer palace of the king. We might think, wow, Naboth has it made. He could use this location for his leverage financially and socially. What a stroke of luck for him. And like a good neighbor, Ahab makes a visit one day. But it's a visit with a purpose. He wants Naboth's vineyard. And he's willing to give a better vineyard for him if he would just give it up. He's willing, if he won't take a better vineyard, to give him a good price for his vineyard. And his excuse is, I want a vegetable garden. It's a fascinating word, vegetable garden. It's only used twice in the Bible, here and in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 10. I think there's a spiritual story. There's something that the author is wanting to stir in us as we think about this particular story. For in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 10, God reminds Israel that the land they are leaving, the land of Egypt, was like a vegetable garden. And that God was taking them from Egypt to the land of Canaan. He was moving them away from a vegetable garden to be his vine and his planting in the land of Canaan. In the Old Testament, Israel is often referred to or portrayed as a vine under God's special care. Could it be that Ahab's desire to replace a vineyard with a vegetable garden is meant to be symbolic of a deeper, deeper desire that he had to take the people back to Egypt? And out of the land of Canaan, he wants to make Israel like Egypt. 
But Nahaboth said to Ahab, notice very clearly what Ahab says, the Lord forbid, the Lord forbid. Ahab was one who would not be conformed to the world around him. The Lord forbid, he says, that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. It's a sort of, we might say, just a tiny word in the law. It's kind of a throwaway guide for the people of Israel. And what is Naboth doing, making his claim or staking his ground on that little phrase in Leviticus chapter 25, which talks about land being inheritance? Well, Nahab understood, first of all, that the inheritance was connected with his redemption. Just as we have an eternal inheritance that is connected with our inheritance, so the people had a guaranteed inheritance in the land that was connected with the redemption from Egypt. The two went together and God said to them, listen, when you get to Canaan, uh, uh, Canaan I'm going to give you an inheritance. It's my land, but I'm going to let you live on it. And as you live on that land, you're never to sell it. You're never to give it away. It is to stay in your family. If perchance you should ever have to lease it or lose it in the year of Jubilee, it will revert back to you because land has to stay in the family. And as Naboth was concerned, he was a man of God. He was a man of the word. The Lord forbid. God's word says, no, you are not going to get my land, Abel. But as we know, Ahab didn't care about the word of God. Naboth did care about the word of God. Again, you might argue, it might be going on in your head right now, really, Naboth? What a stupid hill to die on. What a dumb vineyard to plant your flag on and say, I will not be moved. But it's a bigger issue than that, loved one. It is because he was a man of the word. He was committed to God's word, and there is no trivial word in the Bible that we can throw out whenever we, it's not convenient for us. We can't pick and choose. We can't say, I'll do this one, but not that one. We can't say, I'll obey here, but not there. We can't say, if the pressure's really hard, well, God doesn't really care. If you're one of the 7,000, you care about every word of God. And here, loved ones, is the tension that God's people face every day. Every one of us, every single day, the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed, we battle this tension. An internal one, will you or will you not obey the word? An external one, when you're asked by your boss, when you're asked by your teacher, when you're asked by your parents, do this, don't do that. There's a song in there, isn't there? And it's about rebellion. Um, but, um, see, I'm sidetracked now all of a sudden. But it's a tension that all of us face, is it not? Will we stake our ground on every word of God or will we conform to the pressures of the world around us? So Ahab went to his palace, resentful and angry, because of what Naboth, the Jezreelite, had told him. He said, I'm not going to give you my father's inheritance. And so Ahab lay down on his bed, turned his faith away, and didn't eat any food. Brutal. This is a king acting like a two-year-old. This is instructive. It shows his, 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 his intense disdain for the word of God. It shows his childishness, vexed and sullen. And as I thought about this, this isn't just Ahab's problem. This is the problem of a lot of individuals. You don't get your way, so what do you do? You pout. And Ahab goes off and pouts. Think, really, Ahab? Get a grip on life. But Ahab is a James 4 man. I'll leave it for you to read James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. If this is where the story ended, it would be a great ending, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Because uh, we say, well, it's just like life. It's an illustration of what goes on. There's a few lessons about responding to disappointment. You, didn't, you go on to the next vineyard and poof, off you go. That's not where the story ends because Jezebel enters the picture. Word had gotten back to the queen about the king's attention getting fast. 
the dynamics of the relationship is now sort of illustrated. And it's not unique to Ahab and Jezebel. There's a lot of relationships that are characterized by these kinds of behaviors, fear, manipulation, half-truth, disrespect. Ahab knew how to use his wife, Jezebel, to get what he wanted. Ahab understood the motivational impact of a well-designed pout. Ahab knew the power of selective storytelling. Note, he never mentioned the fact that the Lord had said you shouldn't sell your land. Ahab was willing to place the verbal abuse that he would receive from the queen when she says to him, act like a king, Ahab, in order to get what he wanted, which was the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And then in one of the most shocking displays of wickedness you will find in print, on so many different levels unfolds this incredible blatant injustice. Jezebel devises a plan. The elders and the leaders are complicit in that plan, as is Ahab. They carry it out to perfection, and Naboth disappears from the face of the earth. And we wonder, was it really worth the price, Naboth? Was conformity really? Was nonconformity really your only option? It's just a hunk of land, Naboth. Ahab gets his vegetable garden. It's a shocking story on so many different levels. I was shaken, and I was frustrated and incensed, and I have notes that just scribbled all my frustrations at home in my study with this. And the thing is, if this were just a story, that would be bad enough. But it's not just a story. This is the world in which we live. This is what we see and hear about every day in the news and in the media and in uh, people's lives that we talk to. We say, where is justice? Where is God? Why do the powerful always seem to succeed? Why do the weak always get stepped on? Why are they continually oppressed? Is, nef is nothing ever going to change? And then we look at it through the lens of the people of faith, and it's sometimes even more difficult. We say, God, they're your children. This is your son. This is your daughter. Why is that happening to them? We want God to act, and we want God to bring about justice. If this was the end of the story, which for many people in the world in which we live who do not have faith, this is the end of the story, then we are left with helplessness and despair. Life really doesn't make sense, does it then? Life really isn't just after all. Injustice happens all the time and you live and you die and you vanish and it's meaningless. Life is meaningless. It has no purpose. It's just the powerful win and the weak are trodden on and that's been the history of the world forever and ever. It's just futile to live on this earth. And what it leads to is vengeance and despair. I will take matters into my own hand then. I throw my hands up in the air and say, I can't do a thing. But that's not where this story ends, is it? You come to the other side of the picture, which is the heavenly perspective, starting at verse 17. I needed to hear these words as I have read and reread this account. I needed to be reminded that there is a God. I needed to be reminded that there is a throne, that justice will be seen in part now and in full in the day of the Lord. And loved ones, if you are willing or if you are waffling, remember Naboth. Conformity is not an option. Trust God. Know that there is a throne. Know that God is above watching all of mankind. Know that one day justice will fully be meted out upon the men and the women of this earth. Amen. I didn't have time and I don't have time 
to read a, a story, a fascinating story about a young man in India who was just, just so dismayed by the injustice he saw about him. And he went to get an education so that he could go back and try and deal with the injustices around. And he realized that it was futile. And then he was at some place where somebody was preaching on this text. And this text brought him to Jesus Christ because he said, I never knew there was a God like that, a God of justice. And so we come to a text like this, and I, I want to say to you, don't overlook, if you write and scribble, don't overlook the emphasis on the Word of God in these verses. Everywhere you look, there's a reference to the Word of God. God speaks. Don't overlook the emphasis on the knowledge of God. God is on heaven looking down. He peels back our reality and he sees what goes on around us. He sees what happens in our lives. And he sees what goes on in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. Don't overlook the emphasis on the justice of God here. Sin will be punished. The Lord commissions Elijah, then we read. It says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Get up and go meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. You'll find him in Naboth's vineyard where he has gone to take possession of it. A reminder, God knows our coming and going. God knew that Ahab was in Samaria. God knew that Ahab was going Samaria to the vineyard. God knew that Ahab was now wandering around the vineyard thinking, where am I going to plant carrots? And where am I going to plant leeks? And where am I going to put my potatoes and my tomatoes? And he was mapping it all on. He's still sort of in his head. And all of a sudden, who meets him but Elijah? All of a sudden, what is he confronted with? He's confronted with the word of God. Loved ones, we need to remember that the word of God will find us. It found Ahab. It found Jezebel. Ahab had barely set foot in his newly acquired vineyard to take possession of it. Three times that word is used, and as though he is one, I'm there, I'm taking it possessions of it, and all of a sudden God's word comes to him, you have murdered and taken possession. I don't know the injustice that you've experienced it may be personal, it may be private, but I want you to know God has seen it. God knows about it. You may not get justice today, you may not get justice tomorrow, but you will get justice at the hands of God. Judgment is certain, but sometimes it's delayed. This is one of the mysteries of the justice of God, isn't it, in our lives, and we wrestle with that. It will come. There's a perfect fairness to it. I love this. In the same place that Naboth died, Ahab will die. But it's momentarily held back, isn't it, sometimes? Don't mistake a delay in God's justice and in the execution of God's justice for a lack of justice. Give time for the vengeance of the Lord. Don't take matters into your own hands. Remember, God says, vengeance is mine saith the Lord. And not only will God act justly towards Ahab for his singular sin in the complicit murder of Ahab, but it says that God is going to bring about judgment on his whole house for their promotion of idolatry because they had made Israel sin, or another version says because they had caused Israel to sin. We need to hear that word. Our actions matter. We don't live as islands. Do you know that pastors can cause their congregations to sin? I came across one, many of you would know the name of this individual who has gone over to the dark side. And with him, he has taken thousands of people who are now believing his lies. He will be held accountable for causing them to sin. 
Do you know that we live in a nation where leaders are causing us to sin? Abortion, euthanasia. Do you know that fathers can cause their wives and their children to sin by what they promote, what they allow, what they participate in? Remember the words of Jesus. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and if he were cast into the sea, then it, that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. It's a serious thing to cause another to sin. I hope you're making the connection as we go through this between the prophet of God and the word of God. When Ahab says to Elijah, so you have caught me, my enemy, what he's saying is the word of God had caught him. The word of God had caught up to him. He is saying that the word of God is his enemy. The word of God had found him out. And for some of us today, that's our relationship with the word of God. It's our enemy. We don't want to hear it. We don't want it to speak to us. We don't want it to direct us. We don't want it to guide us. But know this. The word of God will find you out. But it needn't be that way. It is that way because Ahab has chosen again and again to reject, to ignore, and to live as though the word of God didn't matter. The word of God is the living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intention of hearts. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I implore us today, each of us today, don't shake your fist at the word of God. Don't live and act as though the word of God has no influence and no impact on your life. Rather submit to it. Let it cleanse you. Let it shape you. Let it affirm you. Let it direct you. Let it change you. Make it your friend. This story is a story of human history. As I've said a few times, and it's a story, as I've also said, that only makes sense when the spiritual reality envelopes this physical reality that we live in. The story of Naboth finds its fullest telling in the life and death of Jesus Christ. Do you make the connection between those two stories, between Naboth and Jesus Christ? Nothing escaped the notice of God. We understand in the death of Jesus and the life and death of Jesus that men acted of their free will and free accordance with their own desires according to the predetermined plan and purpose of God. Again and again, the Bible declares Jesus innocent. Pilate declares Jesus innocent. Herod declares Jesus innocent. People were lined up to accuse him falsely. One was paid to betray him falsely. It's the greatest injustice that human history has ever known is in the death of Jesus Christ. And yet on the cross, the perfect justice of God was on display. And it's hard for us to see that, but it is the most beautiful display of the justice of God. Because there on that cross, Jesus Christ fully bore the payment and the penalty for the sins of anyone who would put their trust in him fully. The curse, the blame, the guilt, the shame, 
the rebellion, the murder, the greed, the lust, the adultery, the idolatry, all of that was punished by God on Christ Jesus. And for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then what happens is we get his righteousness, we get his perfection put on us. And so the Bible is true that God then can be both just because he has punished Christ fully and completely for what our sins deserve, and he can be the justifier. He can look at us and say, I forgive you of your sin. It's a beautiful illustration of Naboth and the righteousness and the justice of God. We come back to this text, and we come to verse um, 25 and 26. This is the commentary now by the author on this text. Notice what he says. After all this has happened, after justice has been declared, he says, there was none, none, who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. Ahab was the worst of the worst. There was none like him. Whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done whom the Lord had cast out before the people of Israel. I would have been perfectly happy if this is where this story ended. Suits me. Yes. Done. Gets what he's deserved. Look at this. This dirty, filthy pig. Look at what he's done. Look at who he's killed. God's going to kill him. The dogs are going to lick his blood up. Yeah. (laughs) But the ending is so unexpected. It's not what we want. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and he put sackcloth on his flesh and he fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. This is a good sullenness now. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. The delay of God's justice leaves room for the grace and mercy of God. It's not a one-off, what's going on here in Ahab's life. A few hundred miles away, and give or take 10 or 20 years, same thing is being worked out in Nineveh. Jonah is there in Nineveh. He's preaching the word of God. He's there under duress. The Ninevites repent. They fast. They are broken. God withholds his judgment. Jonah goes off and pouts. I knew that's the kind of God you were, and I hate it. But the delay in the justice of God leaves room for the mercy of God. And we look at Ahab, and we say, God, are you kidding me? Really? Are you serious, God? Look at what he's done. Look at who he's killed. Look at the injustices. Look what he's done to your people, Israel. And look at this. He's humbling himself, and you're buying it? I think one of my favorite Old Testament verses is in Micah 7:18. Who is a pardoning God like you? I'm so glad that God is not like me. I'm glad that God is God. I think we might call this merciful justice. What a combination, mercy and justice. Do we see this in anybody else, anywhere else but in God? Is it possible that we should imitate our Heavenly Father? Is it possible that we should try and more and more allow God to work in us such that we might be Merciful in justice as well. It's helpful to ask some clarifying questions about Ahab's repentance. Because I wonder how many of us have done the same thing. 
How many of us have been confronted and slammed by God's word or by someone who has exposed our evil, our wrongdoing, and we're broken, we're hit, we're stopped dead in our tracks. We've been brought under conviction of our sin. The word of God has been heavy upon us and we've broken before it. And then what? Hebrews 6 talks about the difference between remorse and repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 makes a distinction between worldly grief and godly grief. Are you able to distinguish between those two? Is it possible to be sincere for a good time but not for a long time? Is it possible to be serious but only for a moment? I think in this text too it's helpful and it's important that we differentiate between justice postponed and justice canceled. The justice towards Ahab was not canceled. It was simply postponed. Yahweh only changes the timetable, not the agenda. And some of you need to hear this today. God has been merciful to you. He has postponed judgment that he has declared upon you. It's God, is it not? He says, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That is God's heart. So what are you doing with the delay of God's justice in your life? Use it to allow God to work deep, meaningful repentance in your life rather than play in a pool of remorse. Secondly, the delay of justice provides opportunity for personal reflection. Notice that God doesn't talk to Ahab. He talks to Elijah. And he basically says to Elijah, well, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, have you seen Ahab? I think we have a hard time with mercy. We have a hard time with grace. We just want people to be slammed. We want them to get what they deserve. Maybe this is what Elijah was thinking. After all, he had gone to Horeb to accuse the people of Israel and say, God, look at them. What are they doing? Get them. And God says, look at Ahab. I think God is asking each one of us here today, just think about mercy and grace a little bit more. To be willing to work with somebody rather than slam them so quickly. Finally, the delay of justice gives us an opportunity to share the gospel. God's declaration was, I will not bring the disaster during his lifetime because he has humbled himself before me. There's an opportunity for the gospel here, loved ones. This text is, is beautiful because it says there is nobody. I mean, it describes Ahab as being the worst of the worst. So this tells me there is nobody beyond the reach of God's mercy and grace. If Ahab can receive mercy and grace, then anyone can receive mercy and grace. And as long as they have breath, they have an opportunity to repent. May God give you and I boldness to look at people and say, wow, they were awful. 
That was brutal. But God wants to be merciful towards them. I'm going to share the gospel with them. It's an amazing text. Allow it to settle into your head, trickle down into your heart, and change who you are and the way that you live. Father, we thank you for your word today, for this uh, text, for this uh, story that is every man's story, that is every woman's story. Would you help us to listen to you? Would we make the word of God the shaper and the director of our conscience? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.